Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Well, Matt, uh, here we are, Daniel chapter 7, as we continue Thrive Deeper and uh, walk through the book of Daniel, and man, there is a lot of ground to cover. If I, if all of my notes on, you know, chapters 7 to 12 were represented by post-it notes, Stu, this whole room would be covered uh, in post-it notes. There's so much... Mate, I've got 22 A4 pages of yeah. notes that I so, scored down as we went through this. So. so we're going to be very disciplined today, folks, and we we're are. going to try to move through this in a way that focuses uh, on the meaning. But this, yeah, there are some great. really interesting details here yeah, absolutely, uh, as well. So let's, just a reminder for listeners, uh, the book of Daniel consists of both history and prophecy. So in, in one sense, you could say history past and history future. Uh, chapters 1 to 6, which we've already covered, uh, were largely historical and chronological uh, in, in nature. Chapters to 7 to 12 are prophetic. Uh, and so these chapters consist really of four primary prophetic dreams and visions that were given to Daniel. And these dreams and visions were given during those the same period of the first six chapters, in a yeah. sense. So, so we're now putting in what was happening in, in terms of these dreams and visions and prophecies for Daniel uh, that took place in the same time period as chapters one through to six. Now, mm. chapter seven is pretty important because it provides a bit of a foundation uh, for the basis of understanding the subsequent revelations that come through the rest of the book. Important to understand that context. And of course, some of these visions, as we said, are past history. But of mm. course, to Daniel at the time, they were not. Mm. Uh, so it's great that we can look at this and go, ah, that's that. Yep. That was this. But mm. of course, we've got to remember in Daniel's time, these things just seemed completely, he wouldn't have had a clue what, what really was going on. Mm. And, and hence, uh, there was a number of opportunities where Gabriel came to actually mm. explain these uh, these visions to Daniel. So let's jump into chapter yeah, we'll seven. Yeah, jump in. Probably just a big framework yeah, thing yeah, um, to keep in mind as we look through this. Um, one of the themes that I talked about a bit when we looked at the first part of the book, Stu, was that big theme of God's sovereignty over all the nations. You know, here is Judah in exile in a foreign land. What about the promises? Big promises for yeah. the whole of the earth. Yep. What's happened with those? Yes. Well, God is saying here, I am sovereign. I'm not just the God of Judah. I am the God of the whole earth, Mm. and I'm working all things for the good of those who love me. And so we see that continued. These visions are going to really underscore that theme of God's sovereignty as we see various nations coming and going. It's interesting just to, as we launch into chapter 7, Stu, it begins with, uh, in, in verse 2, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me uh, were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. And that, mm. that's a significant comment because, of course, uh, it takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, uh, the, 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 that primeval chaos, the watery chaos, that symbol of chaos and death. Mm. And this is the realm out of which these four beasts come. And this is important because the churning sea stands for this world, worldly chaos. You know, the world has been cast back into chaos. Yes. And what we see here actually is the winds of heaven stirring up the chaos. Mm. As God stirs up the chaos, the realm of chaos, four beasts emerge. So in a sense, what this is saying is that God is stirring this up. And in a sense, God is sovereignly calling forth these four beasts. Yes. Uh, the fact that they're beasts 
indicates, and, and they're composite creatures. Mm. This is a, we, of course, remember um, Nebuchadnezzar became like a beast. Yes. We've got mm. to keep that in mind as well. Mm. In his out of his rebellion and his pride, he became like a beast. Mm. And so this is this is a degraded humanity, and it's indicated partly in the way that the beast that we're going to see, uh, you know, so the first he says was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. So that speaks to the Babylonian yeah, Empire. We that's assume. right. <clears throat> and then another one. I mean, there's there's the bear that's pretty straightforward, but there's the leopard that uh, has four four wings like mm. that of a bird. Mm. These aren't so much virtues of, of signs of rebellion, of things being outside of the way that God created them to be. Because remember, in Genesis 1, we read 10 times, it says, uh, corresponding with 10 divine commands in Genesis chapter 1, mm. that God created everything according to its kind. And what you get is the, in these composite creatures, they, they're breaking out of, of the kinds, in right. a sense. Yep. So these are... Uh, these are nations symbolized by and, and and you know the sort of attributes that they have they do symbolize things but the fact that they are composite creatures does indicate that this that they are outside of creation yeah. the way that god created it to be yeah. Yeah. and 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 god is calling these rebellious nations out so he he's god's doing the summoning here yeah, right. <laughs> and god is going to uh, raise them up and bring them down yeah God is sovereign. Yeah, this is that's that's important thing. So, so let's look at the beasts, and and again, I think it's important to <clears throat> perhaps recognise that th- this is somewhat a bit of a parallel to the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter two, mm. but he saw this as a statue in a sense. So the lion with the eagle's e- uh, wings represented the Babylonian Empire. We've spoken to that. The bear raised up on one side as the Medes and the Persian Empire, mm. and and some would suggest that it's up on one side because the Persians were more powerful than the mm. Medes. It had three ribs in its mouth which speak of the great conquests of the empire, which defeated Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. Uh, Then we move on to the leopard with the four wings and the four heads. This was likely the Greek empire. This vision emphasizes the swiftness of its exploits. Mm. Uh, You know, by the age of 28, Alexander the Great had conquered the civilized world. Mm. Uh, Commentators have pointed out that there's nothing in the history of the world that was as equal to the swiftness Mm. of his conquests. Um, But, of course, we also know that the, the beast had four heads. Uh, and as we know, when Alexander died, the kingdom wasn't passed on to any successor. It was passed on to four different mm. uh, generals or, right. or whatever who took over as succeeding from Alexander. Mm. And the, then the last beast, the powerful beast with iron teeth, represents the Roman Empire. And it's pictured as a powerful beast with iron teeth. Uh, Roman Empire was known for their use of iron, and iron represented their immense strength. Um, and there are different stages of the Roman Empire, obviously. And, of course, we, we remember in the statue that uh, that there was iron feet but with clay toes. Mm, and we're right. going to come back to the ten toes, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. a little later as we yeah. talk. So, so those are the beasts that mm. come up. And obviously, Daniel pays a lot of attention in particular to the fourth beast yep. uh, because he said it was terrifying and, and very powerful and different to the other yeah. beasts. Yeah, And this is important, Stu, because uh, Judah, the Jewish people, are going to be subject to all of those nations yes. uh, at some point. So they need to know and know beforehand, and it's the beforehand that's important mm-hmm. because there's a sense of sovereignty. God is saying, none of this is happening outside of my sovereignty. Yeah. Uh, I am raising up these nations and bringing them down, and so th- they know that as the as these things happen, mm. it's not, not outside, outside God's, God's control. In fact, yeah. it confirms to them that that their God is in control. 
and I sense he's saying, "Be prepared for this. It's it's coming, and it it, it and I'm allowing this to happen in yeah. this way. Totally." Now, the other thing that's important, probably around this, is that we kind of see we, we've got two glimpses into two different areas. Mm. We can see what's happening on Earth at the time, you know, uh, with the conquests and these things happening to the nation of Judah, mm. but we also see different scene emerging at the same time in heaven. Mm. So it's sort of running parallel. So while all this is happening uh, on the earthly side of things, there's also this other dimension happening in heaven, uh, which mm, we also right. see in the second part of that with the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. Yeah, that's right. Part of the vision. The ten horns, uh, we, yep. we have these ten horns. We Now we seem to be projecting into forwards future. still into the future. And this is, remember, this is a very common thing. Often when immediate, and of course this is more than immediate, this is predicting hundreds of years, but the way that, that prophets often saw the future was often, they, were, they often foreshortened it. And so uh, future events were often told in the same breath yeah. as more localized right. uh, immediate events and that's important too for chapter 12 when we get to chapter yes. 12 it's going to yep. be uh, important because it describes in a lot of detail immediate events and then suddenly you're at the end yes often the relationship between the kinds of events is that you get this with these empires you get this sort of rhythm right this is the way it is empire rises falls rises falls rises yep. falls and then it jumps to the end you get the sense that it's like etc 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 this is the way that world history is. Uh, kingdoms are going to rise and fall pretty much right up to the end. And then the final, and that sort of kind of fast forwards to the final uh, final kingdom. And, of course, that will fall too. Mm. And uh, that's when you get the introduction of the Messiah, this Messiah figure. And we'll talk about uh, that in a moment. Yeah. Um, so the pro- projecting forward here has to do both with the ten horns, mm. uh, and whatever that means. And, mm. and um, we see that in Revelation as well in chapter right. Uh, 17, I think it is, uh, of Revelation, we see that it talks about the 10 horns representing yeah. 10 kings. Yeah, that's uh, right. And and then there's the little horn. And, you know, a lot of uh, scholars identify that with the, the Antichrist, Antichrist and yep. so forth. So yep. at this point, Stu, I just sound a note of caution. I think I think with some of these things, it's important to put limits around our speculation. Totally. We don't do ourselves any favor by just assuming that such and such or this confederation or something that happens, oh, oh, this is, this is what it, this is what the teen horns are. That's right. I I mean, I think totally the the problem with that is, is that we can just get waylaid and, and, and often if if it's not that, you know, I don't know, it's just, it's just not always fruitful. I think, we should always be aware. I think we should recognize, of course, that God is sovereign and uh, and that these are things that, get, that are going to come about. But there are lots of versions of this as we move through history. Yeah. And as, as, you know, over the, even just the last 2,000 years, since the time of the Roman Empire, uh, there have been many antichrists hmm. in, in that sense. Hmm. And people have speculated all, all along the way, you know, this is the anti- This Well, in a, in a way, they're right. This is really what this is saying. Nations rise and fall. Hmm. Uh, even Jesus, you know, predicted the coming of many hmm. sort of antichrists yeah. in a sense. So, But there will be one final one. You know, so just during the Second World War, of course, you can imagine people are thinking Hitler is the one. Antichrist, yep. and and in a sense, he is a type of that Antichrist. I mean, when you know, when the the Romans defeated you know Jerusalem and trampled the holy place uh, of the temple, you know, it was thought that's the that's the fulfillment. Well, it was a fulfillment. There would be many uh, moving forwards, and we'll, we'll we'll be speaking to one of those a little later, obviously, yeah. uh, in Antiochus. 
Epiphanies, who I think was considered one of them as well with the Maccabean mm. result, which revolt that comes later. So I think that's a really good point, Matt. I mean, there's lots of people who point to the fact that there are, you know, the world's divided up currently into 10 regional areas yeah. and all those sorts of things. And it could be the case. I think it's important not to not pay attention because I think <clears throat> part of the purpose of yep. prophecy is so that God's people can pay attention. That's right. But, yep. but as you say, don't get into the position where we're just consumed by trying to join dots without actually asking ourselves the question, what does it mean for me tomorrow yeah, and how right. I live my life reflecting Christ? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, like, I think it takes the surprise, perhaps the shock factor, even though things that will happen in our world that are shocking in another respect, but not, not that surprise shock because we're led to understand that things like this will happen right up, into, up to the end. This sets up a kind of pattern mm. and we can expect these things to be repeated right up until the end. And so I think it is right to, to read human history in the light of prophecy, uh, as long as we're not trying to lock it down too much and come up with theories. And then, you know, I always think, you know, the Jewish people had very fixed ideas of what the coming of the Messiah would look like, yes, and they all got it wrong mm. pretty much. Mm. Um, and it was different to what anyone Not expected. expected. Yeah. So I think, I think that may well be the case with the second coming of Christ. Yes, that it'll be different to what any of us uh, expect. Uh, expect. Um, but you know, I mean, I think it's still it's still okay to um, to speculate somewhat and to be aware it's... of what's mm. happening. Now, us. when the uh, <laughs> whenever we get to these points where where you get. This, this kind of final climactic rebellion, you get this introduction of this heavenly perspective. And, yeah. and here is, you know, where it jumps into the heaven, heavenly places and thrones were set in place. The Ancient of Days took his seat in his Chapter clothes. Chapter 7, so, verse 9. So, yep. so you shoot to this kind of heavenly exactly. courtroom yeah. uh, setting you know, yep. yeah, perspective. And in the light of this, this beast, this final beast is slain. And then it says uh, famously in verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man mm. coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing about this, this Son of Man uh, figure, th there's pretty much universal consensus that, that one like a Son of Man, that means, means simply one like a human being. And uh, generally figures in human likeness in the context of late prophetic and early apocalyptic visions are generally found to represent uh, angels. angels. Yeah. But there's something unique about this. Mm. And, and generally scholars agree that, that this one like a son of man is attributed with divine uh, authority. Yeah, divine. Well, not only just divine authority, but is in himself divine in right, some significant right. sense. And also in uh, th there was a, a important, you know, traditional, piece of Jewish writing around um, the book of Enoch at the time, right. and it's not, in, not included in, in the inspired scriptures, but it's an important comparative uh, document. And uh, here in this, in the uh, similitudes of Enoch, first Enoch, we have this white-headed uh, head of days, as he's called, and he's accompanied by one whose face had the appearance of, of man, and he's there explicitly called Messiah, or the Anointed One. And also, he is in some sense, a pre-existent supernatural figure. It says there that uh, this is he whom the Most High has been keeping for many ages. So this is very messianic here yes, uh, in, yeah, in its context, very, very messianic. 
And let's remember that Jesus used the term the Son of Man yeah. more than any other, really, in terms of describing himself. That's you know? right. So yeah. um, in some ways that kind of does reinforce that, although probably later on in the chapter there are some bits that might bring into question around that, whether it was an angel or whether it was yeah. Jesus at this point in time. But again, these are the things we can get hung up on and probably yeah. aren't. Although the coming with the clouds of heaven, yeah. uh, th- this entourage of clouds normally denotes divine status yeah. in Israel. That's a way of signifying divine status. Right. This is God coming. Mm. So, you know, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, he is, you know, he's using divine descriptions uh, of himself yeah. there. This this is actually as clear an indication of the divinity of the coming Messiah uh, as, as anything that you've got, really, in, in the Old Testament, you know, including you know, Isaiah 9, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. You need to put those things together with this, to, you to, know, to get a clear picture of the status of the coming Messiah. And there's there's every, every indication, uh, as inscrutable as the idea is, that nevertheless, the Messiah was always understood in yeah. the context of Scripture yeah. uh, to be a, a divine Messiah. Yeah. So this is, you know, wow, this is really, um, this is really significant stuff. And, and this is predicting the everlasting kingdom of God, um, ultimately. So, And of course, let's remember for Daniel, this is all pretty out there, really. I mean, he, he you know, as he says himself, says for me, my spirit was deeply distressed within me and the yeah. visions in my mind terrified me. You know? yeah. So, um, you know, we read these things kind of now and we think of them in a certain way, but you've got to understand for Daniel, this was like, what am I meant to do with this? Um, yeah. And 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 they did disturb him. And that's right. So he, you know, he he asks really for the true meaning. Yeah, you know? that's right. And 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 so the next rest of the chapter gives that uh, interpretation. Yeah. So in summary, we've got a, a sweep of history here: uh, immediate kingdom, 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 kim, kingdom that connects to the end. It's sort of in the foreshortened. It's foreshortened. It's like this kingdom, next kingdom, next kingdom, next kingdom, sort of etc. Yes, okay, that's right. wo- that's world history, you yep. know. And then it sort of jumps, foreshortens, jumps to the to the final kingdom, mm-hmm. and then the final uh, destruction of the sort of consummate kingdom of the world. Yes, uh, and then the uh, the return of the Messiah and yeah. the uh, establishment of the everlasting kingdom of God. That's all. I yeah. mean, man, that is that is massive. There's plenty um, there. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, chapter eight, Stu. The vision of the ram and the goat. Yeah, so give us the uh, give us the summary here. Yeah, let me just find that in my page, you know, seven hundred and thirty-two. <laughs> so Daniel probably just for context as well, probably is in his eighties at this point in time, mid yeah, mid eighties right. probably. So he's yeah. getting on. Uh, it's the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. Mm. Babylon is still the ruling world power, um, and again, of course, God gives him this vision. Daniel sees himself in a particular place, in a place called Susa, uh, and a very strange kind of battle that takes place. He sees two horned rams that no animal could stand against. Sorry, he sees a two-horned ram that no animal could stand against. Mm. It went north, it went west, and it went south. It just about basically went wherever it, it mm. pleased in reality. It was totally powerful and, and dominant. But then uh, it comes across the shaggy goat uh, with the prominent horn. And to cut a long story short, uh, the goat smashes the ram and tramples mm-hmm. it all over it. Uh, and then the goat becomes the main player, the numero uno, uh, but at the height of its power, its prominent horn was broken off and four lesser horns grew up, which of course sounds very similar to what the, we've already seen. Talked about with Alexander. So in a way, this is focusing in on something that we've seen. So this is, this is 
you get bro- very broad terms in chapter seven. Now this yes. is fo- focusing on a period actually that was to be very significant yeah. uh, for the Jewish people. Well, this is the capture of Babylon essentially. Yeah. Uh, so you've got the uh, the ram with the two horns, which is the Med- Medo-Persian Med- yep. uh, Empire. Yeah. Uh, the goat, of course, is uh, Alexander, Alexander the Greek yeah. uh, Empire uh, with the prominent horn. This actually jumps jumps forward to because the significant moment I'm talking to talking about actually is the uh, the t- time after Alexander the Great. That's right. When the Greek uh, emperor Antiochus Epiphanes, mm-hmm. Antiochus the Fourth Epip- yep. Epiphanes, to be specific. Uh, outlawed Judaism, actually, mm. and he desecrated the temple, offered pig sacrifices in the temple, yep. killed the high priest. This was a very, very serious and significant time, and it led to this to the famous Maccabean revolt and uh, to the establishment of a hundred-year independent uh, Jewish kingdom uh, until the Romans uh, came, of course. Mm. So that was a very this is very that's very significant uh, period. So this is kind of preparing them for that. And uh, because it's going to be, there's going to be uh, a lot required of the Jewish people during this time. A lot of people are going to abandon their faith and, and essentially Hellenize is the word when you sort of follow the Greek ways. Yep. But these events that begin around uh, sort of 170, 170, 169 yes. BC, this is going to be the making of the Judaism that Jesus is going to encounter in the first century, that kind of Pharisaic uh, n- not in its negative sense, I may say, but mm. in its it, that that level of devotion to the Jewish faith, with an emphasis on keeping the Sabbath and and uh, be- because during the Maccabean revolt they're going to die for this. Yes, right? uh, and so these become the markers of true Judaism. So th- this, you know, they're getting a forewarning uh, about and, this. And really interesting to note too, the temple it prophesies here that it'll be for 2,300 evenings and mornings. And in fact, uh, from historical records, it was basically from September the 6th, uh, uh, 171 BC to December the 25th, 165 BC, which is 2,300 yeah. Yeah. Uh, days. So um, amazing here. And, and obviously, th- some people would suggest that that, passage or that vision is now fully fulfilled. Others would yep. suggest that perhaps it's also pointing to the next, as you said before, yep. the next Antichrist in a sense, which which could be Hitler, but also <clears> to <throat> the future end times Antichrist as well. Yeah, well, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes be- does become a, a type mm. of the mm. of the Antichrist, and so there's this double reference here. Yeah, uh, becomes a sort of prefiguration of something that was actually going to happen. It, it happened again in 70 AD. There was a desecration and an abomination that causes desolation. Uh, Jesus makes reference to that in uh, Matthew chapter 24, predicting that the temple's going to be desecrated again. But even that, you know potentially refers beyond that uh, uh Pompey the general Pompey in in when they uh, when the Romans in around 50 um oh, when uh, 60 uh, 63 BC when the Romans retook uh, not retook but took over um the region of Judea they uh, general Pompey marched into the holy holy of holies uh, in the right. temple, and that yeah. itself was an act of desecration. So there's yeah. there's this sort of repeated. This tends to happen again and again. Yeah. But the point is is that particularly Antiochus Epiphanes becomes yes. yeah. uh, this becomes a sort of prefiguration of the kind of final, you know, mm. th- this kind of final Antichrist mm. uh, figure. Into chapter nine and Daniel's prayer. 
prompted by uh, his reading of the scriptures and yes. the promise to Jeremiah that this exile was going to last the 70-year period. It doesn't matter about the exactness. Seven, look, and, and I think this is worth saying at the beginning of chapter 9, 70 in Hebrew literature, but also actually in some uh, other ancient Near Eastern literature, is this kind of round figure to describe uh, a kind of a lifetime right. uh, in a way. Right. And, and so... Uh, it's it doesn't have to be an exact figure necessarily, yeah. and and even when we get to the second half of chapter seven, it talks about groups of sevens. Mm. Well, you you even see if you do a search through, through your Bible for where the word seven comes up, or even seventy times seven, or seven times yeah. seven, it's not usually attached to something like a time frame that we would know necessarily. So it'll just say seventy times seven, or seven sevens, or not necessarily weeks or months or years or anything. It's just, as you say, a period of time that's considered to be yeah. a lifetime or a portion of yeah. a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. Um, this the prayer of Daniel has always been oh, one of my yeah. one of my favourite uh, parts of scripture. It's just it's just profound, particularly in the way that he uh, he collectivizes this prayer. Mm. It's we have sinned. This is yeah, Daniel totally. praying this. Yeah, I mean, Daniel exactly. is is a, is a very godly man. I mean, the, even the angels say about Daniel, "You are highly rega- highly esteemed." Yeah. Right. And yet, this man who was highly esteemed in in the view of heaven. We are covered with shame. Always. Puts on sackcloth exactly. and th- yeah. these signs totally. of, of, of repentance and penitence, yeah. and he includes himself with his people. He says, we have sinned. We are covered with shame. The collective responsibility. That's again. the correct co- uh, collective responsibility. And so you get this prayer. And in answer to this prayer, uh, basically in broad terms, um, this is where it gets a little a little uh, – this is where it gets complicated. But the answer is to the effect that, yes – in one sense, the exile, the historical exile in Babylon is over, but uh, the dealing with the sin of the people and exile, perhaps in a bigger sense, captivity in a bigger sense, is not going to be solved for another for another long period. And, yeah. and it ends up being sort of 490 years. You put mm. the, mm. Uh, well, again, we're working with the sevens here, yes. as, as it says. But, you know, he says uh, 70 sevens are decreed. This is in verse 24. Mm. 70 sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression. Now, uh, of course, the year of Jubilee, This there's reference here to the year of Jubilee and yep. the 49th year, mm. seven uh, times seven years. Um, there was to be a proclamation of jubilee, you know, releasing the slaves from prison. So there's going to be a kind of jubilee of uh, of years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, not 49 years, but, you know, 490 years. years. Yeah. And during that period, uh, that that's the period assigned to the people for the – uh, for pretty much dealing with dealing with their sin, finally, yeah. so that restoration, yes, yeah, so, so that restoration uh, can come. Mm. Uh, he goes on to say in verse twenty-five: No one understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It's interesting that he divides uh, these up. So. Uh, and, and and here we we don't even have the final seven. So there's actually three divisions. That's right. There's the big, there's that first period, the seven sevens. So mm. something significant is going to happen happen after the seven sevens. Then there's going to be sixty two sevens after which something significant is going to happen. Yeah. And then you're going to get the final seven. What did you make of it, Stu? Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I did all the math, but it, it was interesting because you know some of the dates quoted and when some of these things happened. 
all aligned with a particular date, uh, and it's interesting what's known from a biblical, from the old world biblical calendar as, as Nisan Ten, which is the first calendar month of the calendar year, yeah. and yeah. Uh, um, the prophetic. If you if you apply that mathematics uh, up to the last seven, obviously, you end up landing on what's known as Nisan Ten, yeah. which uh, thirty three AD, which was obviously, as we know, uh, the day of Christ's crucifixion. Um, yep. But also on the same day, uh, as we look back through Scripture, it was on the same day or month and day of the year that God instructed Moses in Exodus 12 to take yep. an unblemished male lamb of the first year and separate and watch over it for four days. Obviously, that was then sacrificed on Passover at twilight. Mm. It was also on the same day that Jesus filled that pattern of sacrifice. Mm. He entered Jerusalem on this day to acclamations of Hosanna to the Son of David. Uh, it was the same day that Israel crossed the Jordan and, was, and uh, ended up on the other side of the Jordan and encamped in, in, in Gilgal. Um, and it was on the same day that Ezekiel saw the vision of the new city and a new temple of the restored kingdom, which we talked about, mm. you know, not so long ago in our yeah. study through Ezekiel. So interesting how yeah. these things in terms of the sevens and the seventies and yeah. the sevens all align. So, mm. yeah, very interesting. So the the interpretation of these numbers, actually one of the, Big questions here is when do you reckon, like, it's when do we reckon the start yes, of that that's right. actually is. So, you know, so a starting point of the interpretation could be the command to rebuild the temple given by Cyrus in 539 BC. Yep. Yep. Uh, unless a distinction is made between the temple and the city, in which case the time of Nehemiah would be the starting point. That would be more like 445 mm. uh, BC. I did uh, listen to um, an Old Testament scholar uh, lecturing on this, and uh, she uh, proposed actually it was the word of Jeremiah to read uh, that 70 year. It was from when that was given. Okay. Uh, so that's another view uh, there uh, as well. So, um, or, the, or did we cover the decree that was given to in Nehemiah by? That the people would be released to go back to the yeah yeah well city. well see that's it's interesting because in the that was four forty four BC and yeah that's so, right yeah yeah yep yeah, yeah. so that's four forty four for you know that's right so yeah. look there, there's it's amazing how much discussion there is yeah, a, around yeah. this and and yeah. uh, and look I, I did a bit of serve a bit of a survey of the scholarly commentaries and I'm talking evangelical yeah. uh, scholarly commentaries on this there you know there are differences of opinion on on where to sort of Start. You know, start this from, and I know, I know that there are various, you know, Bible teachers who very unequivocally pre pre present a sort of scheme and and locate this right on the knocker as of either when Jesus was crucified, yeah, uh, or when Jesus three years before that when yeah. he started uh, his ministry. Those, those schemes they do actually work out, and mm. and I think you know, so so that tends to work out if you start at four forty four. Uh, you know, or four forty-five. Again, there's there's a few. It's dependent on a few things, but it it does actually work out quite remarkably. It can the numbers yeah. uh, do do kind of work for that? Um, but of course, that that kind of depends on whether you take that you know that sort of view. And you know, so for example, in the NAC, the the um, New American Commentary, you know, uh, it's it says the view accepted here is that the decree to Ezra. It's that he takes the decree. To, the decree to Ezra in 458 as the correct starting point for the 77s. You know, so he says, then you land, that's where you land on AD 26, um, yes, which is right. the time that many scholars believe that Christ was baptized and began his public ministry. So, 
And um, if you start on 444 BC, which is when uh, Artaxerxes uh, in Nehemiah released, made the decree to release the Jews, yeah. then you land on uh, 33 AD, which is when Christ was yeah. crucified, obviously. so. The interesting thing, though, Stu, if I can summarize yeah, then, is, yeah, is that with all the different schemes, this is the interesting thing yeah, about yeah. these numbers, is that they do all fall on quite significant dates. dates. Yeah. This is why this is what allows for these various arguments mm, mm. because one scholar will will say, well, if you take it from so for example, um you know, the scholar that takes it from the decree of Jeremiah, which is even before the exile, yeah, yeah. that even lands on some really interesting dates mm. uh, as well. So it sort of has this multiple God's got it written. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. yeah, this multiple reference. Yeah. And you know, she even suggested that in the, in the lecture that I listened to that maybe it does allow actually for multiple reference maybe that's that's part of it mm. now who knows but i i think it's look it's a remarkable uh, remarkable prophecy i do i do quite like the the, the couple of schemes whether it's uh, taken from 444 or 458 uh, uh, yeah I, you know the the way that they both I'll land on uh, on key Critical aspects dates. of the ministry yeah. of Jesus. I think, uh, I think that actually is quite significant, yeah. and, and and I quite uh, quite like those uh, mm. views. So at this point in time, we've sort of covered up to the yeah, let's not 69th, get too bogged down. <laughs> the 69th seven, which is really up till Jesus's his time, really, mm. haven't we? If we look at those dates, yeah. You know. But of course, we haven't seen the last, the seventieth. Yeah, that's seven, right. Yeah, uh, yet uh, being completed. So. You know, we're, we're we're waiting for that. That's the future. Well, yes, on, on 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 one yes, yes. On, on one view, and there's a few different ways okay. of viewing this. But certainly, on one very prominent view, there's this stopping of the prophetic clock yes. uh, at the time of Christ, mm. and then uh, there's the gathering in of the nations, and then the clock starts again for the tribulation right. uh, at the end, and that's the seventieth week of Daniel. Mm. Now, again, that's one interpretation. Mm. Um, you know, I think it has its merits. Uh, with interpretation of prophecy, I often feel it is wisest not to lock down on one interpretation totally. too much. Yeah. So I tend to say things like that. Look, that's there are strengths to that interpretation. I'm going to be, I'll be quite happy if that's the case. Uh, be looking out for for what is the case, but um, I tend not to lock down too much uh, on one. I just think it's wisest to yeah. keep a bit of a, a of an open mind. So as we move into chapter 10... I just want to mention one more thing about chapter 9. I think one of the things that probably would have really staggered Daniel, because again, we obviously know the purpose and the process for the Messiah, but Daniel didn't. To read in uh, verse 25 that the Messiah was going to be killed would have been like, wait, Mm. what? Yeah. You know, what, what do you mean that the Messiah is meant to be coming to save us? And so that would have been something that would really have challenged Daniel's thinking in terms of what would happen with the Messiah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because it talks about finishing transgression, atoning yeah. for wickedness. Mm. Uh, it talks about the anointed one, you know, the ruler. Yeah, it's... And then he'd be cut off. Yeah, that's know, right. He'll be cut nothing. off from his... Yeah, that's mm. right. So, yeah, very... And Daniel would have been thinking, hang on, the Messiah's meant to be our deliverer, and he's just being killed and cut off? What, yeah. What's with this? You yeah, know, that's so. right. Yeah. Now, of course, that was predicted anyway in the 53rd chapter of that's Isaiah. Right. So, yeah. you know, that's that's there. But yeah. there we go. And of course, it does also say just at the end of that, that uh, until the end, there will be war. And, and if we, you know, we look at what's happening in the world, there really yeah. hasn't been a season where either for the nation of Israel, if you want to take it directly mm. relating to the nation of Israel as as being a sign, uh, or the world really, there's been constant that's conflict right. that's uh, right. somewhere in the world. Good. So just a bit, again, because there's a lot of complexity there, yeah, again, just totally. another 
big picture summary uh, here. The significance of the sevens particularly is that this is saying, in answer to Daniel's prayer, so he's prayed this prayer, mm. he's prayed for forgiveness for his people. In a sense, the answer is better than what he would have yes. even asked for. Yes. Because it's not just about the release uh, from a historical exile. What the angel is saying to him is, I've got something even better than yeah, that. Right. There is the release from captivity to sin, mm. and it's coming, mm. and it's going to come at exactly the right time. And that's the significance of the sevens, of dividing things up into sevens, yeah. because seven is the number of perfection, perfection. right? Yep. So the angel is saying that God has a time nominated, just so that you know. It's going to happen. Mm. There's a nominated time for it, and this is when it's going to happen. Mm. But uh, you, you don't, and I think one of the things that, that biblical prophecy resists is that we would not know the day or the hour. You know, you get that yes. in Jesus' teaching. And yeah. so I think the use of sevens here and, and even the fact that it's difficult to nail down, I actually think that's important yeah. because he, he wants to say- uh, Be ready. Yeah, he wants to say, be ready. Uh, it's going to happen at the at the perfect time, hence mm. the use of sevens. Yeah, right. I think that's what that's indicating. Just to underscore this fact that God is sovereign, it's it's all just know for certain that it's going to happen at the perfect yeah, time. Totally. That's that's the big picture. Uh, one of the notes I wrote down around, particularly around Daniel's prayer, was that Daniel was thinking about getting Israel out of Babylon, but God was concerned about getting Babylon out of Israel once. Yeah, and that's for right. All. You know, yeah. it was just in the biggest sense the biggest of Babylon sense in the world. Of, yeah, exactly that's right. right. Yeah. yeah, so it's not just captivity. Yeah. In, to Babylon's captivity to sin. Correct. And so that's where you get this, you know, the answer is bigger than Daniel even prayed for. Imagine. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Chapter 10, Chapter Stu, 10. what do we got? We, we read here that again, uh, a vision on, on the 24th day of the first month, I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and his voice like the sound of a multitude. And of course, again, we've got a bit of toing and froing, you know, from the scholars as to whether or not this mm. was Jesus or an angel of some kind. Uh, certainly there are very similar, very um, much similarities between that and the vision that John got in his book of Revelation. Mm, that's right. Um, yeah. So I think uh, it's interesting to, to recognize that. But then we move on to this angelic conflict that's taking place. Yeah. Uh, so this is this is kind of the vision of what's happening in heaven while Daniel's praying his prayer in chapter yeah. 10, verse 13. We talk, we hear about the prince uh, of the Persian kingdom. That's right. So it's quite likely actually that the man dressed in linen um, is that that is a vision of God. That's right. a theophany. But that the one who interprets, because we automatically assume yep. that the one that then speaks to him is, is, the same is, one. is the same one. But but there's a good argument to say that there's this vision, you know, he's overwhelmed with terror, mm. uh, you know, his strength leaves him and he yes. falls to the ground, right? Basically passes out from, yep. this, yep. from this vision. And then a hand touched him. And uh, and this this voice says mm. to him, and I think that you know it may well be that that's an angelic because God often speaks through angels. Yes. So you have uh, you still have that mediatorial thing happening there. The mediatorial thing is important. It's not very often that God will just speak directly to a person. Often yeah. it's through a, a, mediator. a mediator, mediating mm. angel. Mm. And so I think I think that's a good interpretation. The idea that there's a theophany, there's this kind of vision of uh, of God in this sense. Mm. Uh, and then, and then we get this angelic figure that that you know speaks to him. It's interesting 
he says here, Stu, uh, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day you set your mind uh, to gain understanding and humble yourself before your God. Your words were heard, yep. and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Mm. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you, da 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 Now, if we we think what 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 whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Well, yeah. I mean, in the ancient world context, they would have said, "Oh, so because remember they they believed in these localized deities, yeah. really, and and he, and that's actually a biblical idea in the sense that uh, you know there, there's indication in in the end of Deuteronomy that God apportioned the nations according to the sons of God right. uh, or the sort of angelic beings, albeit fallen." And that they were given charge in a sense of various regions, right? Right. right. And so, uh, so you get these territorial, albeit fallen, angelic uh, beings. beings who who control these areas. And so, this looks like uh, what's happened here is that you know he's been on his way, but he's been fighting uh, because this is now Persia. We're in Persia right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. In a sense, he's been fighting for Daniel to make these things possible. Uh, so there's this kind of angelic. There's yeah. this sort of not not between equal forces, but uh, still you know, there there are some times when, in a sense, God or, or you know the forces of God uh, seem to be contained within the boundaries of creation that God has, has set. You know, yeah. and 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 that things are played out within those boundaries for some reason. Mm. And so it looks like here there's some kind of angelic battle going on uh, in the heavenly realms. We don't get much information, but he's saying, he's saying, Daniel, there's way more going on here yeah. behind the scenes than yeah. you know about. There is a spiritual battle going on behind here. Mm. This is opening up. This is what these visions are doing now, is that they're opening up reality. That's right. They're opening up reality so that we recognize there is a spiritual battle going on. There is a battle for our souls. I mean, the New Testament really keeps this window to reality open. doesn't explain it in a lot of detail, but we're very much led to understand that we are in the midst of a of a vaster, much yeah. you know, much bigger spiritual battle, mm. uh, a battle for our souls, a battle for for the world primarily. Yeah. Now, God is sovereign over that battle. He even uses that battle to bring evil to the surface and so forth, mm-hmm. so that evil might be defeated. That's yeah. the way that God works. Yeah. He stirs it up, brings it to the surface to bring it down. We've even seen that in in Daniel chapter seven. Mm. So, uh, this is the kind of battle that's going on uh, behind the scenes uh, here, and we see that in our own lives as well, just mm. as a straight application, you know, when God starts to bring yeah. things to the surface and we want to push them back down again. Yeah, that's right. And the way God helps us to yeah. deal with these things is, is by bringing them to the yeah. surface. Yeah. The, the the final vision, unless there's more that you want to say oh, about no, that, so we can, we can yeah. jump to the to the final vision, which we'll, we'll treat in broad terms. The final vision of Daniel gives, talk about, you know, magnifying glass now. We've seen how we get this broad view, like in Daniel chapter 7, yep. and also then again in Daniel chapter 9. And where you get these broad view sweeps of history, then it tends to focus in on on something important. And here again, you get this focus on events surrounding the Greek emperor Antiochus Epiphanes. Basically, what we have here in chapter 11 is a detailed description of the historical events that lead up to Antiochus Epiphanes, Mm. some of the things that are going to happen during his rule. 
and this is very much summarising the chapter and yes. won't get drawn no, down too, no, no, too much into the details. I mean, it all corresponds with what happens very closely, actually. And yes. a, there's an amazing amount of detail here. Um, and then, you know, in verse 21, that, that's when we get to Antioch's Epiphanes, uh, talks about the contemptible person, you know, talks about the, you know, the trouble during his, uh, his period, mm. his time. It talks about the desecration of the temple, uh, the abolition of the daily sacrifice, the setting up of the abomination that causes desolation. So there's quite a bit of detail that talks about that very important moment, actually, mm. that, again, is a sort of prefiguration of some kind of final uh, period. Because then that's important because it jumps from this, what is essentially a prefiguration, to this final period seamlessly into the future, uh, into the future because from chapter 36, really without taking a breath, Verse 36, we, yep. we jumped to verse 36, that's right, of uh, chapter 11, we we jump to a king, and, and from here, the language seems to be bigger, it uh, uh, seems to be projecting further beyond that event, and again, you get this prophetic uh, foreshortening here, and we got a view beyond the end to, you know, I mean, even from verse 40 there, it looks like he's speaking about what Revelation talks about as the Battle of Armageddon, Yeah, and then as you move into chapter 12, you know, it says at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not has happened from the beginning of, of nations until then. Jesus used similar language uh, to this. Mm. Uh, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up, seal the words of this scroll until the time of the end. So he's predicting there this final defeat. Similar. We've seen this sweep again again and again, yes. haven't we? Yeah. We just get the, the historical circumstances surrounding the Greek Empire, the lead up to Antiochus Epiphanes uh, the fourth. He is the 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 prefiguration of the final Antichrist. Uh, so we get that in a lot more detail, but then we get a sort of a different version of that final great uh, defeat yeah. and the resurrection of the dead. Yes. Here, yeah. Uh, the resurrection of all the dead and the ushering in of, and this time of trouble, you know, that, that he, he says will last for time, times and half a time. Which Jesus kind of three and a half years. Yeah. Jesus speaks to Matthew 24, 21, when he says there'll be a great tribulation, but it'll be cut short you know, for the sake of the elect. Uh, the days will be cut short. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, that's right. And so the time, times and half a time is half a seven. Yes. Uh, that's that's the cutting short. So yep. whether that's a literal period or a yep. literal period, and a lot of people think there's, that there'll, there'll be that, that final seven will be a, will be a period of tribulation will be cut in half a, God's people. I mean, mm. there are a few different interpretations <laughs> yeah, yeah. of this, and we won't get bogged down in that. The point is here is that right at the end of Daniel, you get this stunning prophecy that looks forward mm. to the final resurrection uh, of all the dead. So one of the key things during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes is that you, you have really the beginning of, I mean, the, we've seen plenty of martyrdom before, you know, prophets were martyred, of course, for their message. Uh, but here, during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, there are a lot of martyrs, people that are killed for their faith. And th that's where the importance of the of the, res the mention of the resurrection, resurrection, because, you know, talks about, you know, the wise shining and, and those who led many to righteousness, they will shine like stars, stars in the heavens. Yep. So it's predicting the reward, the, the resurrection and the reward for those who remain faithful during the time of tribulation. tribulation. Mm. Um, so that's the importance of the, of the promise of the resurrection, the general resurrection of the dead mm. uh, in, in that chapter. 
And so, you know, again, it's, it finishes with these words in chapter 12, verse 13, as for you, go your way until the end, you will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will arise to receive your allotted inheritance, says that to Daniel. Yeah. You know, uh, you will rest, you yeah. will die, but at the end of days, you will rise again to receive your allotted inheritance. What an event. And that's really what God says to all of us. As for you, go your way till the end, like walk in God's way. Do the things that God has called you to do. Then you will rest. And at the time of the end, at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive. Thrive.